do have one thing in your favor. Everybody hates you. Well, that's a start. We're going back to the movies. 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 Movies. Yeah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Jeremy Irons. Benjamin, did you enjoy my film? Oh my god! Mr. Irons, it's it's so incredible to have you on the podcast! You're a renowned actor! It's an honor to be here, Benjamin. By all means. I hope you enjoyed Reversal of Fortune. As well as Awakens, uh, which is a uh, less superior film. Uh, but. sure. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you were fantastic, Mr. Irons. I can't wait to talk about it more with my co-host, if only he would arrive. Mmm, maybe he will, maybe he will. But I did just serve him a delicious serving of insulin. Ah, <laughs> uh, just kidding, everybody. This is Nat. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing great. That was a solid intro. I like that. <laughs> was it? I'm glad you approved. <laughs> What's up, guys? This is Back to the Movies, where we go back to a certain year of cinema, in this case, 1990, and talk about all the different movies that came out that year. And today we're talking about two very yeah. exciting movies. I'm actually really excited for this episode and was excited when we first proposed it. It's the Oscars that time forgot. Two high prestige movies that both released in 1990 to critical acclaim and Oscar gold and yet are almost entirely unseen today. At least with people our age. I had never seen either of these movies. I had heard of them, but I had a very, very limited knowledge of what they actually were. They seem like the type of Oscar movies that would be forgotten within 10 years and like not pass over the generation because the other three movies are that were nominated for like big awards, I guess, were Ghost, Goodfellas and Dances with Wolves, which was like the big winner that right. year. So these are like the also rants in that category. Yeah, these are the these are the screeners that they're like <laughs> begging you to watch. They're like, please watch this movie. Vote for it, for the love of God. I had heard of Reversal of Fortune. I think it tended to get a lot of play with like the AFI list kind of thing. Like I remember like Klaus von Bülow showing up on lists of like the great cinematic villains, which we can talk about that when we get to the movie. I don't know if that's an appropriate denomination. Ah, uh, yes, such a villain. But yes. uh, I literally had not heard of Awakenings until we started researching the schedule. Yeah, I knew that there was a De Niro Williams movie out there in the ether, but I figured it wasn't great because I had never heard of it outside of like IMDb research. So I was always kind of like, eh, whatever. What a it's random not that good. pairing of like, you know, like 90s heavyweights. It's like pick two actors and put them in a movie. Yeah, I mean. Steve Gutenberg and Al Pacino are brothers. I wish. I wish it had been like, uh, you know, a little more electric there because sometimes it works. Robin Williams gets paired with a lot of people like that, like in um, Fisher King and sure. I don't know. He's all, I feel like he's sometimes really good. And uh, De Niro with the dude in Midnight Run. Great chemistry. Charles Grodin. But, I love that movie. Yeah, Charles Grodin. But then you get these two together and I don't know, maybe the fact that De Niro's catatonic the whole movie doesn't help well, the cause. We'll, we'll get into that because I think we might, sounds like we're going to have some uh, uh, disagreements on Awakenings at least. Yeah, probably. Well, there's just a few other things I wanted to mention up top, a few other similarities that these two films have that I find kind of interesting. You know, we selected this pairing largely because they were the also-rans, and we knew we were going to do individual episodes for the other Oscar contenders. 
We've already done Ghost, Goodfellas, Dance with Wolves is coming up in a few weeks. Uh, we're going to have some special guests on that episode, so I'm pretty excited for that. Yeah. But these two movies didn't really fit anywhere else, didn't seem like they were worth doing on their own, so we paired them together. But they're actually, uh, they share a lot of, in common. They've got uh, catatonic characters. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a weird through line. They're both based off memoirs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that the the authors of the accounts of the true stories are major characters in the work, which I think is really interesting and something that we should uh, try to unpack a little bit as we're talking about the movies. It makes them very different from the sort of more journalistic works of nonfiction like Mountains of the Moon or even something like Goodfellas, although that kind of bridges the gap a little bit since uh, Henry Hill had such a, a hand in the creation of the book. Yeah, and I guess the other similarity is that they're both kind of about highly educated professionals doing procedural work oh i love that that's that's some real ben shit right there yeah great for going to sleep um <laughs> great right. for a nice snooze now i'm ready to get into it yeah should we talk about awakenings first yeah let's do it so it sounds like you were not a fan it's just like it's every other oscar movie that is not very memorable <laughs> there's a couple good scenes there's some good stuff going on but it's a snoozer it's one of those it's like that mounds of the moon thing it's one of those movies they would turn on when the teacher didn't want to do any work and makes you watch in uh, psychology class or whatever. It is dangerously <laughs> close to that, like, every Oscar movie ever comedy short video. Oh, my God. There's so many lines. As a trailer editor, I was, like, salivating because there's so many ridiculous lines in both of these movies that are like, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do it. And, like, De Niro running outside. Which is fine. It's just the whole movie surrounding all of that is kind of drab, kind of boring. Jesse, my girlfriend, was in the other room, and she, in the last like 10 minutes of Awakenings, there's just like five minutes of the shitty score with no other sound. And she was just like, she was in the other room, and she's like, oh, wow, that music is still going, huh? <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, yeah. But let me tell you, there, if, if 1990 was, you know, 2015 or 2010 at the height of Oscars screeners, there would be a landfill with like 800,000 discs of awakenings. So it's just a boring ass movie. Like it's, it's fine. It's cool. It's an interesting thing, but it's like a New Yorker article. It's a seven page New Yorker article at best. I love that. Love those. (laughs) I, I wound up um, enjoying this movie quite a bit. I, I felt about it the same way that I felt about House Party, which was that a lot of the movie was flawed or didn't resonate um, the way I believe the filmmakers intended, but at its heart was a scene of such tremendous power that it elevated the rest of the work. See, I liked all the stuff going on in House Party, though. Like, it's a way more exciting movie than this one with, like, much better characters. Well, that's because you like you like young people going to parties, and I like stuffy old people doing work. Yeah. What, <laughs> let's ask the view. Let's ask the listeners. What's more fun to watch? Uh, <laughs> uh, a a nebbish Robin Williams falling asleep and reading a book about plants and then opens opens his fridge of plants. <laughs> I I don't know what to tell you, man. I don't know. So let's get into some of the background here, because I think the background of both these films is really important to recognize, given that they're based off true events and the accounts of true events by characters who appear in the film. So Awakenings is based off of a memoir by Oliver Sacks. Have you ever heard of this guy? Not really. I've heard his name. I always get him confused with Oliver Cromwell, the the British (laughs) 
executed <laughs> who, who executed people? I'm always like, wait, Saxon Cromwell, which who's the doctor and who's the monarch? So tell me all about him. Um, I mean, I don't have a lot to say. He he is a tremendously successful, popular neurologist. I would the way I describe it is he's basically like the Neil deGrasse Tyson of neurology. Like okay. both a tremendous mind in his field, but what makes him stand out is how well he was able to communicate it to average people. He was uh, um, he wrote many many books, all of which are about understanding how the brain affects the way we live. He was able to translate it to the Oscar voting establishment. <laughs> the uh, the the Hollywood elites are like reading a book by their pool, like, right? Right. Oh, I mean, yeah, they wow. do like so. There was a, a, a this big one is a, like the man who thought his wife was a hat. Uh, I might be getting the title slightly wrong there. I read one of his books um, in college about music, about how the brain understands music. That was really excellent. And yeah, he's he's a really important figure in the field of of neuroscience because he has made it accessible for many many people. And so this book is based off of his experiences working at an institution in New York in the sixties. There's a couple other figures to mention before we get into the film itself. First, I wanted to mention that uh, it's adapted for the screen by a screenwriter named Stephen Zalian, who I think is definitely a figure to recognize because he's one of the preeminent screenwriters of the 90s. He certainly like still holds esteem today. You know, if his name's attached to a project, it's, it's kind of a big deal. I mean, when The Irishman was coming out, his name was mentioned almost as often as Scorsese's was as a selling point for the film. I think his big thing is he's like one of the great adapters particularly of nonfiction, but if you like look at his list of credits, it's things like Schindler's List, one of the great works of adapting nonfiction, Searching for Bobby Fischer, then he's got things like Clear and Present Danger, an adaptation of a novel, Mission Impossible, an adaptation of a TV show, Hannibal, another novel, Gangs of New York, another novel, Moneyball, uh, which he did with Aaron Sorkin, which is one of my favorite screenplays and movies of all time, uh, another piece of nonfiction, and then The Irishman, another piece of nonfiction. So he really go. is 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 one of like the best screenwriters at taking an account of true events and turning it into a movie. And this is pretty early in his career, and maybe he's still figuring out the most effective way to do that. Uh, I agree with you that it's not all of the dialogue rings truthful. Some of it's a little um, a little <laughs> trite. Was um, Robin Williams playing Oliver Sacks in this movie, or was it like a composite? Character? He's playing Oliver Sacks, but with a different name. His name okay. is Doctor Sayer. They went the alternate route from reversal of fortune which is to turn your author into like a superhero <laughs> right yes exactly uh i think oliver sacks is ultimately a much more humble man than alan dershowitz <laughs> alan oh my god i can't wait to talk about alan dershowitz <laughs> one more person we should Jesus. talk about for awakenings though is the director penny marshall i was actually really excited to talk about her because she's another really important figure as a female director um, someone who probably didn't get nearly enough credit when she was making films, um, largely because she was overshadowed by her um, arguably more famous brother. We've already talked mm. about him. That's Gary Marshall, the director of Pretty Woman. Oh, yeah, that's right. All the way back in, like, episode two. So I found out a fun fact while I was reading about Penny Marshall that will answer an unsolved mystery from the Pretty Woman episode. Okay. How's that for continuity right here? That's amazing. Do you remember you asked me at the beginning of the movie, it starts on a uh, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame? Yes. Carol Lombard. So it turns out that Penny Marshall, her first name is Carol, which she was named in honor of Carol Lombard, who was 
her and Gary's mother's favorite actress. Oh, okay. So, so Gary was giving her a little shout yeah, out. Yeah, a little maybe? homage to her, her, to his mother and his sister there. That's cool. That's, That's cool. really, really interesting. Deep dive. Penny Marshall has one of the most fascinating careers in Hollywood. She starts as an actress. She works on a bunch of shows, many of the ones that her brother produced. You remember he was uh, one of the guys who made Happy Days and then all the spinoffs. Her big break is in Laverne and Shirley, which is one of the many Happy Days spinoffs that comes out. Um, but she does a lot of good work on TV and then eventually makes the transition to directing films. Her first film is Jumpin' Jack Flash in 86, which is also important in the career of Whippy Goldberg. That's the one that really cements her as a, as a movie star and not just a comedian. And uh, it was a big hit. And then Penny Marshall follows it up with Big in 88, which was huge. The first movie directed by a female director to gross more than $100 million. Damn. Big. So that's where she's at. Coming, This is like uh, her, her follow-up to Big. So she's made two sort of big crowd-pleasing comedies. And uh, uh, now she's trying to step into a slightly more serious fare. Now she's pulling the fairly, going for the gold. But she definitely still keeps her comedic touch. I mean, that's obviously very present, particularly in the later sequences when you have all the awoken, uh, all the awoken patients. That is true. That is true. Although I will, I will say that the the comedy doesn't hit super hard it's not laugh out no, loud it's, it's real laverne and shirley happy days comedy like a gentle nice home cooked comedy yeah totally um a little but... a, a little you know a little lethargic maybe a little a little, little sleepy a little yeah, sitting I, I on started... a porch on a, on a warm <laughs> sunday afternoon and this is what you enjoy you sick fuck <laughs> i will say there was one big laugh moment for me, but you're not going to agree with it, and you're going to think it's problematic. But that's all right. <laughs> um, well, yeah, we'll certainly get into that, because there are parts of this movie that I found uh, very problematic. In, in the same yeah. way that I found the homophobic rap in House Party problematic. There you go. What a double feature, huh? Let's get into the plot. So, the movie opens, we meet our main character, Dr. Sayer, a renamed avatar for, for Dr. Sex, played by Robin Williams. He's getting a new job. Uh, at a new hospital, taking his first step into clinical work after being largely a researcher. Yes. How'd you feel about Williams in this movie? You know, I I gotta say I I need my Robin Williams to be a little more uh, a little more active, a little more charismatic. He's like anti. He's I think he's trying to prove something with this role. He's like, I can be I can be timid too, and it's just not what I'm looking so for. So I I wanted to talk about that. I find his film career so interesting because I remember when we were like young teenagers uh, and Robin Williams did a series of like serious roles like Insomnia and One Hour Photo and Goodwill Hunting sort of predates that and stuff like that. And everyone was talking about him uh, uh, breaking out of like his his manic comedian persona. Yeah. But this movie and things like Dead Poets Society, which are very somber you know, earnest roles like predate a lot of the stuff people think of when they think of like hyperkinetic comedian Robin Williams. I think in those movies, he was playing like a killer in those those early two thousands movies, and that scared right. people. But right. he was those, a villain. In, even in even in like Dead Poet Society, he's the guy who's who's still full of life and having fun. He's jumping up on desks and saying oh captain my captain and he's bringing everyone out of their shell so i think that when he went in the direction of like sigh the photo guy like stalking people 
that's what bugged people out. And I think this movie doesn't really work for me because he's not bringing people out of their shells. He's the one that has to be brought out of his shell. Like, that's what this movie's doing. Yeah, I think that's fair. I was just sort of more observing that uh, I, I just, I guess, sort of always misunderstood his career a little bit. Like, obviously, he's got Mork and Mindy, which was another Happy Day spinoff. Yeah. And a huge hit makes him a TV star overnight. But... He actually, like, you know, he struggles for most of the 80s to break into Hollywood. He's got a couple of hits, but a lot of misses. And it really isn't until, like, the trifecta that is Good Morning Vietnam, Dead Poet Society, and then arguably this, that he really makes a name for himself as a movie star. And it's just so yeah. interesting that those three films are not, like, you know, they're not The Birdcage. They're not Aladdin. They're not, you know, him being a cartoon man. Yeah, it's true. I guess it's also weird being born when we were born because, like, Robin Williams is, like, our freaking idol. Like, I know, it's true. He Crazy's was everywhere. all-time favorite actor. Yeah, it, it was It was probably, like, everyone's favorite actor at one point or another. So it, it is a weird perspective thing. Yeah, Flubber, um, you know, all those bangers. Jumanji, which Jumanji, I was singing oh, phrases God, on one Jumanji. of these episodes. I can't even remember. Yeah, this is, like, that post tv but pre like super super stardom or like middle of super super stardom i guess one thing i will say about him in this film and that i agree that like maybe he's slightly miscast and underutilized as this kind of nebbishy character i think that the dr sayer emotional arc is one of the most maudlin parts of the movie and and one of its weakest elements but uh, do you, are you talking about his relationship with the, with, with, with Julie Kavner? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Julie Kavner. Uh, yeah. That stuff's like, it's like really screenwriting one one kind of bullshit. That is like, I, I can see the old lady at the test screening in 1989 being like, I turned my dial up to 10 when he chased the girl at the very last scene. That but made what, me feel good. What I will say about his performance in this film and about, him generally is that he is one of the best people at expressing joy in movies. Okay. He has probably the single best smile in cinema, the way his entire face sort of like crumples in on itself and just sort of splits open with joy is incredible and infectious. And when this movie needs that, nobody could do it better. That is very true. That is true. If he had been played by like, I don't know, Nick Nolte. I don't. I don't know who I'd put in this role, but, but I feel like it would be worse. Like, like I'm trying to think of actors at the time. I mean, who could play like? I mean, like, what about like Tim Robbins? Know, Woody, Tim Imagine Robbins. That's Tim a good Robbins. One. Hell no. Tim Robbins would have would, would have would have fit the type, but I don't think he would have been as good in the scenes of this movie that are transcendently good. Which are the best scenes? Like, like the transcendent scenes where, like, they're just talking about, like, happiness, which I kind of thought this movie was going to be a little bit more of because I was mm -hmm. like, oh, it's going to be De Niro and Williams. This is going to be crazy. They're going to go nuts. And then when it became, like, a, like, TV show, basically, for half the movie, I was just like, oh, It's like a deflated. little sitcom. Yeah. Ugh. It's pretty low stakes. So anyway. We, we spend a while meeting all the patients in this clinical hospital that, that, that Dr. Sayer has started working at. I see a note here that this is where you laughed at, at stuff. I the, laughed really hard when the lady screams at the pen. <laughs> it's funny. I'm sorry. The, her I scream mean, and his reaction is really funny. I, I laughed too, but I also recognize that like this movie is having way too much fun with these people's mental illness. 
there's like a good like 15 minute chunk where he's throwing shit at them. It's, yeah, he's, it's just like slapstick. He's running away. Except it's people who are sick. <laughs> it's people who are debilitated in a mental institution. Um, yeah, it's funny though when a lady goes, ah! Like, <laughs> and then later I, when they I all agree, have to cover their pens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that stuff is like, you know, it's a very 1990 attitude towards mental illness. It's a 1990 attitude reflecting back on a 1969 attitude towards yep. mental illness. So it's not great. But the movie, I think, ultimately does try to humanize basically all of these characters, with maybe the exception of the woman who screams at the pen. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and that goes a long way to uh, I think like softening some of this uncomfortableness. Yeah, some of this discomfort. Sure. That's the right word. And it was just like some some fun stuff was happening in c- cut against him reading about plants in his house. <laughs> You're making it sound like that was a really long thing. It's like a ten second scene. But it's so like on the it's point like, for what this movie is. It's like <laughs> yeah, this movie is not subtle. <laughs> no. Turns out the Academy doesn't really like subtle movies. Yeah. Oh boy. And we're we're gonna even get into more of that with a reversal. Of <laughs> During the sequence, we meet one of our other major characters. We've already mentioned her, Julie Kavner, playing um, a nurse. I don't remember the what a character's name. The love is. interest. Yeah, the love interest. Uh, I have to say, I always love it when she pops up in a movie. Obviously, Julie Kavner is the voice of Marge Simpson and Patty and Selma on Simpsons. And she has this tremendous voice, and because of that, and because of how iconic Marge Simpson is, I feel like she never gets work in movies. But she's just, I, I like her presence, and I think she is always nice to see. She is nice to see. She probably doesn't need to do any movies anymore, right? She's I mean, like, yeah, she's making a million dollars an episode or whatever. I don't know. I was reading that it's in her contract with The Simpsons that she no longer has to like do any on-screen promotion. She just, <laughs> so she just shows up, does her lines... And gets a billion dollars. Kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah, that voice cast, man. That voice cast. Amazing. This is a long chunk of the movie. Like it's almost to the halfway point before we introduce Leonard, who is our our, our second most prominent character in the film. It's like it's like a third of the way. It was it was like no. I actually checked when he showed up. It was like thirty minutes in or so, but it seems long because we have multiple scenes of well, Williams reading plant books. No, I'm <laughs> we have one scene, but you're right. Even <laughs> even after he's introduced, he is catatonic for the next ten minutes. So it isn't yeah, really until exactly. like the forty five minute mark that he actually awakens. Right. Yeah. When we get real De Niro, were you expecting him to like become Neil Macaulay by the end of the movie? He's just like totally slick. <laughs> He's like, I'm gonna break out of this suit on. He's got the gray I'm hair. Just, I'm gonna break out of this ward. Listen. If you're in a ward, you can't fall in love with anybody. You got to be able to escape from the ward in 30 seconds or less. And leave every, leave all your tennis balls behind. And uh, then Williams would be like, did you see that nurse? She had a great ass. Dude, Pacino should have played the doctor. I would have loved that. That would have been a great film. <laughs> um, he could oh have done God. it in his Dick Tracy makeup. Yeah. So... De Niro's kind of going a little against what he's normally doing. You know, normally he's a tough guy. Normally he's yeah. a, a man's man. We we talked about him obviously Goodfellas a couple of weeks ago, and at that time we highlighted all his work with Scorsese. But I just wanted to like quickly run down all the stuff he was doing outside of Scorsese because as much as those films remain like his the pinnacle of his achievements as an actor, 
they're pretty limited in their range in the way that they use him, with maybe the exception of King of Comedy. Mm. And uh, he did have a, a pretty significant range and, and appeared in a lot of different movies and a lot of different kinds of roles. Prior to this, on top of the Scorsese films, he's got things like Deer Hunter, Once Upon a Time in America, Brazil. I love him in Brazil. Great yeah. little supporting performance. The Mission, which uh, has uh, Jeremy Irons in it, was a big early role for Jeremy Irons. Angel Heart, where he plays like a really cheesy villain. Untouchables, another like really over-the-top villain character. And then Midnight Run that you already mentioned, where he's really funny. Uh, it's an amazing movie. Oh, I love that movie so much. And and so I I appreciated that this movie is like making use of part of his range as an actor that he doesn't often get to demonstrate. This much more like vulnerable, childlike side to him. Yeah. And also like a very technically proficient performance. But we are delving a little bit into the Tug Speedman of it all. The <laughs> well, here's what I'll say Oscar about that. Bait. Here's the what Oscar I'll say bait. about that. I, did this one write the this in my left foot like wrote that <laughs> rule? Well, it's it's I mean it's um it's I am Sam. That's the real problem, right? Well, I am Sean Sam Penn. was it like took it over the it hill. took it over the top. That was but, the, like it was like my left shark. foot was like the, the like oh yes that's how I'll get here. Um, and then but, this is like. Uh, I don't think that there is something inherently invalid about, like, a technical performance. Like, there's certain actors, Edward Norton comes to mind, who, like, really embrace roles that, like, have some kind of tick or strange, like, really, like, showy, challenging thing to accommodate. And I always really appreciate that as, like, part of the acting toolbox when you can do a performance that's technically challenging, when you can take on an accent or a mannerism that is uh, not natural for you and you can, can make it convincing. And although the the form of, of Parkinson's that Leonard, the character De Niro plays, has is pretty extreme. I have every reason to believe, and I found the performance to be accurate and compelling. And even Oliver Sacks himself said, he called it uncanny. Wow. How accurate it was. He said that he would have dinner with De Niro after the film was released, and he would see him continuing to subconsciously affect like the mannerisms. Like he'd turn his foot inward or tilt his head without even meaning to. After that, because that's how deeply De Niro had internalized it. There you go. That does sound like really good PR. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Well, to be fair, and we'll get to this um, while we can talk about it right now, Sachs himself was pretty critical of the movie. Oh, really? Yeah. He said that it was sentimentalized and simplified and not an accurate representation of his experiences. Interesting. Okay. Which I would agree with. But this sequence here is the sequence that really elevates the movie for me. Watching this is like Leonard becoming, wake up. Yeah, watching him wake up, meeting his mom again. He, particularly that scene. I mean, I burst into tears. When he um, turns from the window and he throws his arms up and his mother walks through the door. Like, it's yeah. so incredible. And I mean, so much of it is De Niro being supported by Williams. I really liked the scene with them in the water. That scene really embodied what I think this movie was trying to go for. Because they go on this whole tangent a little bit later about, like, we have to be happy. We have to embrace life. Yeah. And, like, that was the truest moment to me was, like, De Niro being truly jubilant. And Williams, like, trying to control the moment but, like, really acknowledging that it's, See, like, not a bad thing that's happening. I like And, and so then he, he wades out into, nicely. like, the East River or, or, yeah, or, or like, the Hudson Bay or something. He's having fun. He was a kid in the 20s or whatever. That's what they used to do. They would, I have to they would say, swim out there. I'm a little surprised to hear you say that because for me, that sequence is the treacly, like, Oscar Beatty shit. And I really find the discussions of, like, what it means to be alive to be really cloying. 
I think the, the scenes that really get me are just like the straight face depictions of the joys and tragedies of being a sick person and being around sick people. Yeah, I I guess I didn't like I didn't like the scenes where they were talking about being happy. I hated those scenes. I just <laughs> like I just I liked that one scene where okay. it's the two guys hanging out, walking around, yeah. having a good time because I'm just like this is great. This is Williams and De Niro. They're not confined to the fucking hospital ward. They're not like doing pills or whatever. It's just t- these two guys hanging out and like that's where I liked the movie. I was just like I wanted to see them be friends basically. How did you feel about like the the actual awakening? Like him out of bed encountering Williams him the next morning? Did you find that as powerful as I did? I didn't find it as powerful as you did. I think that it wasn't using enough cinematic trickery to like make me excited about the whole thing like i kind of knew what was coming and sure it just didn't have that eureka moment like and maybe it's more accurate that that kind of thing doesn't happen but i kind of need my movie to be like dumb in that way if you're gonna be covering stuff like this no i like what you said there because this film does you know i compared it to house party and the experience i had with house party where the dance sequence is the this movie's equivalent of of the awakening scene but ultimately, I'm a little bit cooler on this movie than that one, and it's largely because, although this sequence is very moving just because of the reality of these people's situations, and it's expertly executed by De Niro, and by Williams, and by uh, um, Ruth Nelson, who plays the mom, it doesn't have anything else going on for it, really, except for the performances, and then, like, the the, the fact that it's a true thing that happened. Right. Well, like the dance sequence at House Party is like one of the most complete cinematic experiences that you can have. Yeah. You know, brilliant cinematography and music and a a, a full and editing. And the sequence is very plain and simple. It kind of gets out of the way to just let the performers do their work, which ultimately I find to be a little bit less exhilarating than what was presented in that film. Yeah. If you're going to go like just performer, like for me at least... It's got to be some Daniel Day-Lewis, there will be blood shit. Like, they got to be going You just want angry nuts. men being I just, crazy? Well, yeah, basically, like, if you're not going to use the other cinematic tools, then if you're just going to focus on the one thing, that one thing has to be, like, a total showstopper. And I, you don't think De Niro's De Niro, stopping the show here. But no, he's not stopping the show here. Uh, what it's, about, it's very what sad. about later when, when, when he starts to succumb to the disease again? You know, again, it's it's De Niro, so I'm not gonna like say that it's bad. It's just that the movie needs to. Nah, you're gonna it a look him in the more. face and you're gonna call him a fucking asshole. No, I never would do that. I think he's carrying the movie, but unfortunately, the movie's not really doing much else. We're in drab locations. We're we're using really cheesy score. We're using, you know, it it the pacing of the movie is just sort of like a flat line the whole time. Like even in the scenes that are more intense, like the movie itself doesn't get more intense. It's just the performance yeah, that gets more true. intense. It's true. I think that that sort of speaks to Penny Marshall's very, um, again, sort of I, I, I like, like home cooked style where like everything yeah. is like safe and comfortable. It's delicious. It's a far cry from Scorsese where he's really trying to challenge you. I, yeah. I think it largely works in this movie, though, because it gets out of the way of this really incredible true story. And this true story, unlike the true story in Reversal of Fortune, is genuinely incredible. I'll be honest with you. true Based on a true story doesn't carry a lot of weight for me. I really don't 
care that much if something's based on a true story. I think the most brilliant thing ever is when the Coens put based on a true story in front of Fargo. Because, like, to me, it's just, like, marketing. It's, like, yeah, it's based yeah, on a true story. I don't, like, I, I think I'm more excited if the movie itself is exciting versus, like, what is true about it or what isn't. So, it really depends on how it's employed for me. I, I feel like when that moniker is put in place to make the accomplishments of the characters seem more impressive, it generally turns me off. Mm. But when it's in place to emphasize the miraculousness of what happened, where what happened seems too strange to be real, which I think this movie sort of falls closer to that, where just the fundamental idea that these people had been unconscious for 30 years, awoke and had some time to re-experience life and then re-succumbed to their illness is, is, is one of the most beautifully tragic things I've ever heard of, of, of a human being experiencing. Just knowing that that happened to somebody, I find deeply moving. Word. I'm a cynical, cold-hearted <laughs> bastard once again, and I'm not ashamed <laughs> to say it. No, it's just for for me. That's the kind of story that is a great twenty pager New Yorker. Like, I mean, it would be. I would. I mean, I want to read his his book. I think it's probably a fascinating read. Yeah, and he's an excellent writer. So I'll probably check that out at some point. We sort of covered everything that happens. You know, like they wake up. There's some funny business with them all getting back into life. I guess we could mention uh, Penelope Ann Miller. Oh, plays, I like, wanted to mention interest. something. The um, does every Oscar movie have to take place in like 1969 <laughs> as well? Jimi Hendrix. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, there's that was a new movement. There's a lot of really clunky, like middle America jokes in here. And like the Jimi Hendrix joke is like the, the classic example of that. <laughs> oh God. Everything important happened between like 1960 and 1970. It's a real and that's what every Oscar movie will be for <laughs> until the end of time. Every possible historical thing that happened then. Before we get to this, uh, I guess, a discussion of Penelope Ann Miller and I guess the end of Leonard's arc, let's do a quick rundown of like some of the people who appear in this movie because I just want your quick takes and I've got some hot ones. We've got John Hurd playing uh, the the sort of the head doctor in the hospital. Yeah. He's having a big year. He's going to be in Home Alone later. I always think of him as the, the shitty cop in Sopranos who throws himself <laughs> off a bridge. So sad. Good. Good. I wish... Uh, he had a, a a scene after everyone gets sick again because he has been saying, like, we're going too fast. We're not thinking this through the entire movie. And then he doesn't get his I told you so scene or his scene where he gets to be bigger than that, which sort yeah, of he's winds just up an like, asshole. making his character a little bit lesser. He's just he's so good for the trailer bites, though. He's like a gold mine. <laughs> you can't do this. No, this has never been done before. Well, I'll give we you have one. To stop. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you one. Oh, cut to De Niro. Yes. Perfect. But how about Peter Stormare, who gets like a, a two seed performance as some as a as a chemist, a biochemist? What does he say? He's like, "You're the doctor, I'm the chemist." Like, <laughs> I'll let you do okay. the damage. I mean, every exciting movie scene happens in a men's room. Let's be real. Sky or uh, Casino Royale, and this. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, that's it. Those are all the scenes that happen <laughs> in men's rooms. Uh, I'm along came Polly. Oh, I haven't seen that one. I'm just making a joke about how fucking boring this movie is. I'm on a real hot streak of boring, boring ass when movies. Peter Stormare walks in to deliver some exposition and he's got like shoulder length ratty blonde hair. He looks like he just walked off the set of Fargo. Yeah, was he like supposed to be a hippie? 
premise? I have no like, idea. Did he invent what LSD the him. year before? <laughs> He's such an odd insert. Whatever. Um, Good on him. We've got Max von Sydow playing an ancient man. Of course. As he's been doing for 15 years prior to this movie and would continue to do for 30 years afterwards. Excellent. Excellent. I mentioned already Ruth Nelson, who plays uh, De Niro's mom. She was like a classic Hollywood starlet. She was good. I like. She's her. got sort of an old-fashioned energy, but I think it kind of works. Yeah. She, she was a very convincing, weird mommy. She kind of became the villain towards the end, huh? Oh, no. She's like, Not really. make him a baby again. I yeah, want to take care of him. That's all like humor based where, where she's <laughs> like, he was never interested in girls before. <laughs> yeah, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> he literally was catatonic for so long. And she's <laughs> like, wow. Well, and then, and then William says that too. He's like, oh, he was never conscious before. Oh my God. She reminds me a lot of, of old Rose in Titanic, who was like another oh, like yeah. silent movie actress that they brought out for that movie uh, where they just have like this slightly stilted air to them that makes them feel very like, like they've walked out of a time machine. Listen, it was the pictures that got small. <laughs> okay. It wasn't them. We got Penelope Ann Miller as the girl that De Niro girl. falls for a uh, pretty thankless role. Oh, you're staying here. Okay, great. Let's bone. <laughs> I the dancing does get me mostly because of um like just the idea of like the self sacrifice of De Niro who can at this point he's regressed so much into his Parkinson's that he can barely you know get out his words telling her that like this is goodbye and he never you know that she really shouldn't come see him anymore because it's going to be too painful and then they dance and it's really beautiful and maybe maybe tear up again. It reminded me of the end of Ghost. Yeah, except De Niro is way better actor than Patrick Swayze. <laughs> I don't know. Who, who wins in the competition between Awakenings and Ghost? I think Obviously, I know the answer. Well, we can talk about that later. Um, uh, Alice Drummond plays Lucy. She was the librarian in Ghostbusters. She's nice. pretty good in this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm looking at the notes. The, the, the lady from Sleep with Anger. I thought that was that lady. Yeah. One of the other nurses is Mary Alice. Yeah, okay. She's having a hot year, just like John Hurt, huh? She doesn't get a lot to do either, although she brings some of that quiet storm. It's kind of cool that she's in this, but then she's starring in another like indie movie. Yeah, probably the plight of most prominent black actresses in Hollywood in the 90s. Yeah. Bradley Whitford. Baby-faced. You know, I just saw Adventures in Babysitting, and he's in that too, and he's even younger. Uh, It was really, it's kind of weird. I don't really register him as Bradley Whitford. It's like he's got... The Bradley Whitford face, but he's not Bradley Whitford. <laughs> he he wasn't born until the West Wing aired, and then he walked onto set fully formed. For me, it's a he becomes true ba- Bradley Whitford and Billy Madison. That's sure, when he's actually sure. Bradley Whitford. But before that, it's weird. It's he's like a Pokemon almost that evolves. <laughs> so he kind of looks like, but he's not in the full. The hair form. hasn't taken its final. The hairline yeah. hasn't backed all the way up yet. And then he evolved again, and now he's old Bradley Whitford, which is even I do love old Bradley cooler. Whitford. Yeah. yeah. Somehow even better. <laughs> and then supposedly Vin Diesel's in this movie as an orderly. I didn't see him, but he's somewhere. Maybe he had hair. Maybe he's impossible to see. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, he used to have hair. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's plenty of other actors and actresses in the film, but uh, those were the ones that stuck out to me as being people worth checking off a checklist. Is this movie not just Flowers for Algernon? Let's be honest. It's the same exact plot. I know it's based on a true story, but it's the same thing, right? 
They give him drugs. He gets better. He becomes a genius, and then he regresses. How that doesn't cheapen it. This was a real thing that happened. I know, but it's if, if, if the movie of it already exists, it just makes it all the more less interesting to me. <laughs> like, and if it's not going to do anything like that fun, that's that's what kind of killed it for me. The movie's got a movie. I, this, that's my new quote of that's, every episode. Yeah, we're gonna get the that movie on a is t-shirt. not moving. It's not moving enough. Move me. Move. Get moving. Move around. Do some movement. You you have become a victim of of what Scorsese did to cinema. I think so. You just like I mean, can't like sit it. still with a movie for a while. Nah. I mean, I, I'm still telling you there's slow movies that I'm liking. It's just these kind of like, kind of like monotone 90s movies that just haven't aged very well. Like, I don't know what it is. But I will just, say that I thought this movie looked really bad. They're drab. It's just it's, so It is a drab looking drab. movie. Yeah, and it's just like, it's just, it takes me back. A huge part of that is the fact that it takes place in a hospital. <laughs> yeah, with bars on the windows and beige walls. But, but look at, is... uh, look at uh, you know, that really famous movie, Cuckoo's Nest. They managed to make it work, right? All in a ward. All that movie a... is kind of visually drab too, but it's sort yeah, of yeah. But it, they make up for it. That's with why all he's got to wear that hat on. the whole time, just so he looks so like more interesting. I think that movie looks way better than this one. That I movie's... agree. I think that film is better shot, but I also think that like from a design perspective, hospital movies are drab. That's kind of how it works. Even um, Exorcist Three managed to make hospitals look pretty cool. True. So it's not impossible. You're uh, right. It just That's takes a, a little hospital. bit of talent. So. What's the legacy of this one? Budget was $29 million. It opened December 22nd to $417,000. goes on to gross $52 million domestic. A perfectly solid, if unimpressive, hit. <laughs> I suspect that both Williams, who's coming really hot off of his last few films, and De Niro, who has always been you know, a very well-respected actor, if not the biggest box office draw, were uh, big selling points for audiences. This was definitely the agreed upon movie uh, on christmas nationwide like oh god we gotta get grandma there well we and it mom. certainly delivers for that right like it's it's a real crowd pleaser lowest common denominator but like not insultingly so kind of movie exactly exactly and ultimately i think it's deserving of mostly being forgotten i just i think time forgot it for a reason i don't know I don't see people flocking to this movie for the 30th anniversary. Uh, uh, well, I'll be buying it on Blu-ray if it exists. I, I really, I thought it was worth it for De Niro's performance and for that, that scene. Fair enough. It gets nominated for best picture, best actor for De Niro and screenplay, but didn't take any home. Didn't take at home any awards. Let's talk about sleazy, disgusting, rich people. <laughs> Which is infinitely more interesting than <laughs> sad people in a hospital. Let's be honest. Come on. I got to say, I think it, both doctor and lawyer movies are kind of tough for me. I'm not as intrigued by that stuff as you are. It's just kind of like... You want movies I, about mobsters. You've made this clear with Dick Tracy and Goodfellas. I mean, those movies are great. I like Gangsters. movies about people that aren't like super professional, like just more fun people. I don't know. <laughs> Cause yeah, I loved like House Party and I loved like Blue Steel. I don't know. I just when it, when we get too technical, I get I kind of turn off a little bit. I think I'm better suited to like read that kind of stuff than to sure. have people spout it in a movie. How do you feel about like procedure based plotting generally? 
I'm not a fan of movies that could just be a Law & Order episode. <laughs> That's true. That's your review of Mystic River, I remember. Yep, because that is just a Law & Order a movie episode. that I really like. That's so yeah, funny. you like yeah. really smart people spouting words at each other. And I'm like, dude, great. West Wing, 45 minutes. I don't have to sit here for two hours. <laughs> no, I just have to sit through eight seasons and only four of them are good. I'm just saying I'm not a big fan of these types of movies. This movie... Reversal of Fortune. We're moving Reversal on to Reversal of Fortune, of Fortune. Which was the winner of Best actor not nominated for best picture like i thought it was but just jeremy irons got best actor this movie is pretty wacky and that sort of saved it for me in the sense that it's this like legal thriller right it really leans into like the lifestyle the rich and the famous stuff that was super big at the time and i think now this sort of thing is covered more in like tv shows and true crime documentaries sure but it was pretty wild to watch. Definitely this movie. true kind documentaries. Like, I, if 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 the Von Bulow case had happened in the two thousands, there would be like uh, an HBO or Netflix ten ten episode series, or there would be like an FX like American Crime Story, which sure. people also eat up. And that's basic. This movie is basically that for nineteen ninety. I think it's like a pretty big budget for the story being told. And I think that comparison of like revisiting an iconic crime a little bit more than a decade after it happened, comparing this to the OJ trial and the way that that has been presented in recent media is like a very oh, yeah. fair comparison. And probably the best way that you and I can access how audiences would have felt seeing this movie. Because one of my big takeaways from this movie was I bet it played a lot better with people who were familiar with and interested in the Von Bulow case. Totally. Yeah. Especially because it had only been like seven years. Even when they redid all this OJ stuff, it was like 16 years later mm-hmm. or even more. It was like 20 years later. That's that's when that miniseries came out. So even then they were trying to like sort of recontextualize it a little bit. Whereas this one felt like you, you were kind of lost a little bit if you didn't know who the players were what the general vibe was to well, begin with. And a lot of the appeal is just sort of peeking behind the curtain, seeing the untold stories of what you would already know. Yeah, exactly. It was a little jarring to jump into this movie because I didn't even know it was based on a true story. I knew nothing about this movie other than Jeremy Irons is in it. So I'm jumping in and I'm like, oh shit. Like Alan Dershowitz <laughs> written by Alan Dershowitz. Oh no. Oh my God. Let's and then start it, there. Just went, it went off the rails from there. So when I say Alan Dershowitz, what do you think of? I think of like fucking Fox News commentating like (laughs) asshole lawyer who (laughs) has defended every wife murderer and child molester that has more than a million dollars. I mean, he is like the celebrity lawyer, right? Like he's probably the best known lawyer, best known for being a lawyer of like anyone who's ever been a lawyer. Yeah, like him and all the other OJ people. Like, yeah, I guess like Johnny Cochran or someone like that. Yeah, like all those. But but Dershowitz transcends OJ. Dershowitz has been high on so many high profile cases that like yeah. even when he's brought on to the legal dream team, it's because he's already an established figure in the public consciousness. Right, and th- it was so baffling to see this movie. I couldn't <laughs> believe that this was the thing. I. I take it that you have, you know, if anything, sort of a negative connotation when you think of, of Dershowitz. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, he just doesn't seem like he seems like a fame whore. Like (laughs) that's what he wants. He wants, he's written like 80 books. 
and he's on and TV he's been all on the time. Every high profile like case of the century. Yeah, so like when when he starts talking about like defending people's legal constitutional rights and shit, I'm like, okay, that's fair, but you're also like a total clown lawyer, like fame bitch ass whore. Like <laughs> you're not I, a real person. I can't disagree. I have a fair amount of distaste when it comes to what he represents about the law. Um, yeah. And context for listeners who didn't know, I, I attended law school. Um, yeah. So right. I have uh, uh, just the tiny barest amount of additional context that I could bring to this movie. <laughs> and I have a, a serious respect for the way the law functions in society. Like I, I, I'm really interested in that. And this movie really ticks some boxes for me on that front. But I tend to not appreciate what Dershowitz means to that system and the arguments that he makes in this film. And I cannot ever forget that this is based off of his accounting of the events in which he is the main character, the righteous white knight, smartest man in the room, superhero, as you put it. This movie is Alan Dershowitz, the first Avenger. (laughs) He's like playing basketball with the evidence t-shirts. Who makes evidence t-shirts? <laughs> what the fuck is this? It's so crazy. Uh, what's interesting to note is the Von Bielo case is one of his first high-profile cases. The, the The first one was when he defended the star of Deep Throat, uh, the, the porn film, who had been charged with obscenity, with distributing obscenity. So it's, it's, it's the same exact track as all these people. It's Paris Hilton, sex tape. It's always start with sex, and then... You can build a brand from there. So then he, he he takes on this case. He wins the appeal. It's a big deal. People are really interested in it. The Von Bulow crime was, was or, or the Von Bulow mystery, I guess, captivated the nation. And so Dershowitz writes this memoir. Yeah. And I think it's it's important to recognize like that 80s style of rich people like the, the Von Bulows were like so mysterious, like that Newport, Rhode Island shit. Old they, like, money. Yeah, that just like those mansions in that opening shot of this movie. Just like people ate that up back then. They loved it. There was that show Lifestyle of the Rich and the Famous and like Dynasty and Dallas. This was just the the thing, like ridiculously rich people. So when one of them kills another one, it's so juicy. Everyone's everyone's so fascinated. Ah, yes. Including this film's director, Barbe Schroeder. Uh, He's kind of an interesting figure. He's Swiss by nationality, but he was born in Iran. He moves to France and he produces several of the films of Eric Romer at the tail end of the French New Wave. And uh, he makes a few of his own films, a couple of interesting sounding documentaries that I'd really like to check out. And then he breaks into Hollywood with a film called Barfly in 87 with Mickey Rourke that got nominated for the Palme d'Or at Cannes. And that sort of leads straight into this. So he's interesting because he's not uh, um, a Hollywood guy and he's not an American guy. And as far as I know, he wasn't in America when the Von Bulow case happened. So he's coming at this as kind of like an outsider, which I think is interesting. That's so weird. It seems like that's not the perspective of the movie at all. It seems like it's steeped in all this shit. Um, right. Let's get into this movie. That opening shot I loved. That's a cool shot. Just going over shot. mansion after mansion after mansion. Every mansion has a secret. And then somehow we wind up at the biggest one. Yes. I can't even remember, like, this movie's weird with, like, jumping around. It does, like, those flashbacks. Yeah, and not, and not in a way that feels, like, structurally coherent. Like, it just sort of, like, you never know it's going to happen, and then it's like, oh, and now we're going to hear from Sonny again. The movie opens with the voiceover. Right. Which already, 
things are weird. This is some weird creative decision making, I think. Glenn Close playing Sonny Von Bulow, narrating her movie from a coma. Cool choice. And she's a real person that is still alive when this movie comes out. Like, isn't that kind of weird that there's a living person so who's being dramatized? I want to talk about that. Yeah. She's in a coma? I think the Sonny character in this movie, I really, really struggled with. I found her weirdly absent, even though she gets her own voiceover. I just, she never really coalesces a character. And part of me wondered if that was intentional because the movie didn't want you to think about the real person who was still in a coma because of the events depicted in this film. Yeah, it's a very strange covering of a character. I really don't understand what this movie's point of view is because she's narrating, but it's clearly from the point of view of Alan. Right. Most of the movie. All we know about Sonny is what Alan understood about what Klaus told him. Like, we never get any more insight to, into Sonny's character than that, even though she narrates the movie. Yeah, I to me, it kind of stinks of, like, a really sexy way to start the movie. And on paper, it seems really awesome. Like, right. this is me in a coma. Now I will reveal the mystery to you. And it's like shot of Glenn Close in the hospital bed. And it's just like shocking and crazy. But then if you think about it for more than five seconds, you're like, wait a second. This makes absolutely no sense. It's just like the sexiest pot, even though it's not sexy at all. It's her in a hospital bed. Like it's kind of gross to be honest, but it just is very mysterious and very grabbing. It's like, it's like starting a book with being like, I was killed on the night of July 4th, 1979. Like, you're like, whoa, oh. she was, the narrator is killed and narrating it? Like, it's the kind of stupid shit people fall for. It's like a Barnum trick. <laughs> it kind of is in just in the fact that the movie then doesn't follow through with it. Yeah. If the movie had tried to characterize Sonny more, it might not feel like such a shallow exercise in style. Yeah, but it also just doesn't make sense. She's in a coma. How is she narrating if she's in a coma? Well, that's like Pesci narrating Casino. Like, whatever. Yeah, I know. It's That is a whatever. It's just like, it makes no sense for the story, which is ultimately what we need. Let's talk about Glenn Close for a second, because I want to talk about her. She gets her start in theater. She transitions to film with World According to Garp, which is important to mention because it starred Rum Williams. So we've got two crossovers early in the careers of both actors involved with this film with both actors involved with the other film. Oh, kind of yeah, interesting. that's kind of cool. She is nominated for Best Supporting Actress for her first three film roles. She goes World According to Garp in 82, Big Chill in 83, Natural in 84. She gets nominated for all three films. That's a pretty impressive way to start a film career right there. Yeah, nice. By the end of the 80s, within one decade, she will add two Best Actress nominations for Fatal Attraction in 87 and Dangerous Liaisons in 88 to her CV. So, like, she is the prestige actress of the 80s. Yeah. That's like some Meryl Streep stuff right and there. And she famously never has gotten an Oscar. She almost did recently, but then she got... The movie took. was bad. <laughs> yeah, that movie sucked. <laughs> that movie gave me some some boring vibes. Let's... <laughs> Let's be honest. That one was too much even for me. Uh, oh, God. What was that movie called? The Wife? The Wife. Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, she's she's an interesting person. I've got to be honest. I've never really fallen in love with a Glenn Close performance, but I also haven't seen any of those movies she's been nominated for, so I haven't, like, my Glenn Close education is very limited. Sure. 
She is excellent in Big Chill and The Natural, both films I deeply love. I think Fatal Attraction feels very dated today, and Glenn Close's character is a big part of that. So I don't know if I would put that one up there with those other two, but uh, it's certainly a film worth checking out. I haven't seen Garp or Dangerous Liaisons. Yeah. I do want to see Liaisons because that's the one with John Malkovich, and I love John Malkovich. Yeah, man. I just, yeah, I've never really seen what the hype is all about. So I got to check it out. I don't think she is great in this film. I think she's good. I think um, in the scenes where she gets to do some showcase stuff, she does it convincingly. But because the character Sonny isn't well characterized and we don't really get a sense of who she is, I wish the performance was a little bit bigger, a little bit more iconic. Ironically, I felt like Christine Baranski who's got like two scenes in the movie makes a much bigger impression. And like someone like her as Sonny probably would have been better for the film than Glenn Close. Who's trying to do something that's too nuanced. Yeah, I guess I didn't mind the Sonny flashback performances, but like, it's just weird that she's billed so high up. Cause like she's in the movie for all of like 20 minutes. So I see her as like a victim, but like as a character, it's kind of crazy. I will say I did enjoy her just being strung out and petting a tiger and having 20 what did he say he's like she had 20 glasses of eggnog that night (laughs) like all that stuff i was really into for the same reason that people loved this shit back then like it's funny to see insane drunk rich people she's just so muted yeah she is all of that yeah she is it's it's a weird covering of her in the movie the real show stars are Jeremy Irons as Klaus von Brun. Jesus. This guy won Best Actor. He did. At the 63rd Academy Awards. He did. He beat uh, a pretty uh, some pretty impressive performances that we've, we've already talked about this year. Who did he beat out? Well, I was just thinking about movies that we saw. Uh, for people who were nominated, the other actors were Kevin Costner, Dances with Wolves, Robert De Niro in Awakenings. He got nominated for Actor. He doesn't show up in that movie until halfway through. Uh, Gerard Depardieu in Sarno de Bergerac and Richard Harris in The Field. Okay, so I, I can see Klaus winning. That's pretty easy. I don't think that's a terrible competition for him. No, but I'm thinking clearly... about some of the other performances that we've seen, like going up against like Ray Liotta or James Caan. Oh, yeah, yeah. But those movies aren't Oscar bait, Ben. You have to know how to play the game. You have to make <laughs> movies about professionals that old people will enjoy when we get to the 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 btt emmys we could have this this debate over who's the winner but i i have always been a really really big jeremy irons fan i think it comes out of the fact that like when i was um a young man uh you know in my tweens and then teens uh i kept dragging my mom to all these terrible fantasy movies that jeremy irons kept getting cast in so there was like the marlon wayne's dungeons and dragons movie in the early 2000s, and then there was the Time Machine with Guy Pierce, and then there was the Aragon adaptation when I was a little bit older, and it always had Jeremy Irons in it. And so for me, he was just like a fixture of the kinds of movies that I loved, even though they were bad. There you go. He's also Scar. That's a big deal. He's also Scar, although I was never really a huge Disney kid, so that doesn't register as much for Yeah, me. again, I'm not as educated with Jeremy Irons. These are all actors in all these movies that, like, we're sort of a little bit before my time, so I never really got the education I needed on all of them. Like, you know, Glenn Close, Jeremy Irons. Yeah. Clearly Robin Williams and, and uh, Robert De Niro broke through into the 90s, but I do feel like 
there's that other list of actors from the 80s that like made movies in the 90s, but just they weren't as prolific or something. I don't know. And this movie was like, that is the cast. Well, all these actors that time forgot a little bit. Generally, I'd say that like Irons is Fair is more adult oriented too. I mean, it actually made it kind of nice for me as I grew up that like after all these terrible movies that I had loved him in when I was a kid, I could then discover in him in things like The Mission, which I already mentioned, you know, with De Niro or Dead Ringers, which is like my favorite Cronenberg film of all time, which he plays a, a, a dual role and is excellent in. He's just got that steely Britishness, you know. I just I, I I've always just I love his um his voice and his mannerisms. He was great as Osmandius in Watchmen this last oh, year. Yeah, he was in that. He is so weird in this movie. Um, <laughs> He's so weird. Yeah, it's it's unreal. It's a, it kind of makes the movie really kind of pleasing how inscrutable he is, and yet how human. Yeah, that's sort of what saved this movie from the brink for me was that there's just so much weirdness in it that is the kind of weirdness you can only get in movies, like just people acting strange and doing weird ass shit. Glenn Close. Alan Dershowitz, all three of them are doing weird performance choices that clearly this sweet, weird Swedish director was just like, yeah, go crazy with it. Like, yeah, he uh, was just like, we're doing it up. I don't know. It, it was wild and wacky. And I kind of love that. Can we can we briefly talk about Ron Silver? He's back, baby. I love Ron Silver. Yeah. Way better in this movie than in um, <laughs> Blue Steel because he's not a weird monster werewolf guy. One thing I found out about him is he went super conservative after 9-11. He like got like he was in the White House with Bush. I didn't realize. Yeah. That. How do you feel about that, Ben? Is is he? It doesn't diminish his performances. He wanted to bomb babies in Iraq. Are you you're cool with that? <laughs> the man has charisma. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, he's good in this movie. I, I actually really resented this movie for kind of like weaponizing my love of Ron Silver against my <laughs> distaste for Alan Dershowitz. I will say this. I When the movie started, it was like, and Ron Silver in the opening credits. And I was like, oh, that guy. Okay. And then when Dershowitz came on screen, I, I have like a, a uh, elephant brain. So of course I already forgot Ron Silver was in the opening <laughs> credits. So I'm like, who the fuck is that? This performance is crazy. And then I'm like, oh, this isn't like a one scene guy. This movie is going to revolve around this guy. And then it's like, oh, that's the guy. That Ben wants to fucking go to lunch with. That's Ron Silver. Okay. Uh, all the pieces are coming into place. So, yeah, amazing performance. Unbelievable. I, I want to break down the Dershowitz thing just like a little bit more because this sequence where Klaus hires him really highlights the, the problem I have with the sort of white knight image of Dershowitz that this movie paints. Even though, like, it can't escape the irony of that situation. So in this sequence, you know, we've got him basically, like, in back-to-back scenes, justifying, charging exorbitant legal fees, and then reclaiming the moral high ground within his classroom as he explains why he would choose to defend someone that he might think was guilty. He totally pones a lib. It's kind of amazing. (laughs) I think the scenes, like, work fine in the movie, and if it was a fictional lawyer, they wouldn't really bother me. Right? Like, like they're, they're yeah. doing what they need to do to, like, convey these ideas to the audience. Right. But there is so much irony in them where you've got Dershowitz standing in front of his classroom saying, you know, we can't allow this to happen where 
Von Bülow's stepchildren hired a private prosecutor to investigate the case and 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 present you know, evidence, evidence to the prosecutors. It's like this is akin to you know you're advantaging the rich against the poor because the rich will be able to hire a private prosecution. One, we all know that the legal system already advantages the rich over the poor and the you know and 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 significantly disadvantages. Uh, uh, you know, uh, people, uh, minorities. And two, a huge portion of that is because of the privatization of defense, which you are the chief example of, Mr. Gershowitz, because (laughs) you charge exorbitant legal fees. Like, you are exactly what you are railing against. Yeah, and he gets lots of cool book deals, and he gets to hang out with celebrities, and he gets to go to the Epstein Island. It's great. I think it could work, because I don't think that these arguments are cut and dry. And if the movie challenged Dershowitz a little bit, if it pushed back on his righteousness a little bit, I might be okay with it. But it doesn't. It just lets him be vindicated over and over again. It lets him be the smartest guy in the room over and over again. And it's exhausting. Yeah, you can't control your own story. I'm sorry. You need an outsider (laughs) perspective. Otherwise, it just becomes like a propaganda film about yourself. And, you know, Awakenings has a little bit of that, right, with Sayer bucking against the system and, and being right about how to treat these people when everyone else tells him he's wrong. But the movie knows that that is less important than the experience of the patients and, and allows him or gets that stuff out of the way just to focus on Leonard instead. Yeah. And this movie could really, really use some of that. It's way too interested in the victories of Alan Dershowitz and not in the experience of Klaus von Bülow. Yeah, there's a lot of Dershowitz in this movie. It's unbelievable. But it it's also because the movie is from his point of view and not from the von... The von Bülers in this movie are like a weird side plot, almost. <laughs> it's way more right. about like, oh my God, how, what are we going to do in court? Which is fine. But then it just cuts to these weird rich people petting tigers every 15 minutes. And you're like, what the fuck is going on? This next sequence, uh, I actually liked a fair amount, where we've got him sort of assembling his team of lawyers and students and beginning to put together uh, uh, their defense. And there are some things I did like about this movie. I think this movie does a really good job capturing the sort of like intellectual adrenaline rush that is the creative problem solving and deduction and uh, just like brain testing work that is forming a legal defense and strategy. Like it made me weirdly nostalgic for law school, something I have not felt since I left. Yeah. I mean, they make it look really cool. It's like, we're all going to be in a frat house together and like, we're going to put rooms that have different subjects. Like it's a super, it's a frat house of people reading old trials. Yeah. But even then they make it look fun. They play ping pong. They play basketball in the front yard. Like, I don't know. They make it look awesome to be like, working on a case like this. It also captures a little bit of the competitiveness too. And like the, uh, um, the challenge and the cutthroat nature of it too. Like, you know, barking at people to get back to work. Everyone's always trying to one up each other. How does this work? So they ask a professor at your school gets hired by a rich guy. And then the professor can ask you to work for him. Like in school. As what like could be your- a better educational experience? I know. It's just weird to me that like, it's like being a resident in, in medical school, right? Yeah, I guess so. Intern, and I guess you don't you know? need a license just to do the research because they're not going into court or anything like that. Is the pay good for this? Is it just for credit? How does that work? 
I don't know. He says that he's paying his students. I did, okay. never did this. I couldn't tell you. Did they get a book deal? What's up? I okay. Uh, no, that all went to Dersh. Oh my god. So yeah, I have to say though, that cool, like though. the focus that this plays on the preparation is is pretty rare for a courtroom drama. Yeah. You know, it really sure. isn't that interested in the theatrics of the trial, which is what most courtroom movies are about. It's right. really much more interested in just like all of this rigmarole, even though it kind of gets a little bit vague towards the end about what this rigmarole actually is. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk a little bit about all that. Um, what do you mean? Go ahead, tell me. Ta- well, talk to me. A lot it. of a lot of shit happens in this movie. A lot yeah, of yeah. episodic shit. The first one being the creepy, weird private <laughs> investigator guy. Yeah. Which this is a prime example of what I loved about this movie. Just weird people acting weird it's great it's like true detective or something like it's i just enjoyed this guy's weirdness and like he's got a real chair. energy in that first scene yeah when he's sitting in that swivel chair and he's just like what you think i'm a liar like I, it's just so sleazy and great i will say though that ultimately this subplot really bothered me because it seems to exist only in the movie to exonerate dershowitz in the eyes of any audience members who had heard that he had wit- tampered with witnesses but, like, didn't know the context. Yeah, but the guy was so charmingly sleazy, and it was fun to watch him. He's just, like, so gross. And, like, you, lo- <laughs> I love how Dershowitz is just, like, I'm not staying in your disgusting living room. Like, Dershowitz <laughs> is trying to be all hard, hard-bodied, like, puritanical about this guy. He's like, you're a freak. And, like, that guy is just so weird. What a character. I love it. And then, yeah, there's, there's the whole entry of... Um, alien jeremy irons into the world of the lawyers when he comes down and yeah those sequences are pretty good because he's so out of place yeah that's the strength of this movie i find that it's just about weird weird characters in situations and it takes the time to like let them creep each other out or be awkward or whatever and it does have that same aura as that oj trial miniseries where yeah you're looking forward to seeing like what actor is going to play this role. Even though I wasn't there and didn't even know any of these people, you could still tell that they're like hamming it up really high to play these larger than life characters. And that was pretty fun. So let's talk a little bit about the flashbacks. Cause you've already mentioned a few times that you like them. You like how they demonstrate lifestyles, the rich and famous stuff, which is definitely an appeal of this movie. I gotta say, I, I felt kind of the opposite. I, I found this movie very plodding, like just like kind of like taking its time to get nowhere in particular. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I agree with that. And I found the flashback stuff and the life in Rhode Island stuff to be the worst offender of this. I was way more interested in the high energy case building stuff, you know, maybe well, because I like process and yeah. whatever, <laughs> but it's also like the parts of the movie that's like exciting with like di- character drama. And, like, all the stuff in the house is, like, Sonny's got a headache. I love that, though. That's the funny stuff. That's the good stuff. Like, Sonny's got... That's what won him the Oscar, by the way. That's what got this movie the Oscar gold. Not the case shit. Let me tell you that. Uh, no, it's him sitting Sonny's in the Chinese got, even restaurant. Even you just saying, Sonny's got a headache. Like, it's so fucking weird and funny. I, and, and I think that, like, people who are familiar with the case probably would have really loved to see, like, this, like, inside look at their lives. Right. You know, which is something they couldn't have seen, you know, in the court transcripts or, or in the media coverage. But God, it's so not doing anything. 
It's it could it would be better if it was like Rashomon and like we kept seeing the morning from like different characters' perspectives or like there's so many ways you could make it more interesting than it was. Yeah, I, I might have to pull out the uh, Miami Blues defense on this one, Ben. It's just about the ridiculousness of the, what the people, what words are coming out of their mouths, and the tiger that is on. Yeah, I like the tiger. The tiger's the, in there for like five seconds. Yeah, and like the the dining room and like the maids and like all that stuff is just so fun and like escapist and weird. And even Glenn Close's performance, like just having a freak out shit fit. It's it's just kind of funny. Like Except she like doesn't freak out. This is my problem. She just she like does. She has a couple uh, big she has a couple uh, big screamers, right? She she kind of when? blows her top a couple times. When she's, she's like so reserved. She's like, I want a divorce. Like oh and then she also doesn't when say sleeping, that. When they're sleeping in bed together, even though they just told each other they're gonna have a divorce. <laughs> That's like and Jeremy Irons has the he's got like a rag a over his ears <laughs> and his eyes. And it's just so it's so insane. It's like you're you're describing it as if it was like a, a um, Wolf of Wall Street or something like that. It like kind of was. Just well, like a less, lesser version it's like, of it. It's like it's it's closer to like Downton Abbey. Sort of. It's like, kind of like a mix a of bunch the two. of quiet, sad people in a big fancy house. Yeah, but it's still interesting because they're rich. Like that's what it boils down to. They're so ridiculously uh, rich. I'd rather watch somebody who's poor. <laughs> That it's like it's so ostentatious and gross, and you can't look away. And that's what captivated the nation. That's what captivated everyone is that she was on twenty benzos or whatever, and it's just it's a crazy story. And this dude may have murdered her. The, the, the Jeremy Irons of it all is just kind of amazing. When he's like, "I need a job. A man can't just sit on his deck, lounging away his life." And she's like, "Get a job, then." It's just so crazy i love it a couple other people we should mention pretty large featured role from annabelle uh Sciorra, who plays sarah the yeah. uh, sort of like second lead on the on the, the defense preparation i just want to mention her because she's going to be the female lead in jungle fever in 91 which we talked about a fair amount in our mo better blues episode she's kind of another dershowitz propaganda machine invention it's like yeah dershowitz fucked this hot lawyer but now he's too good for her now he'll never touch her because it's just business but trust us he fucked her (laughs) and by the end they she's kind of into it again yeah like it's so ridiculous that's it like her personality like i knew plenty of people like this in law school like very very accurate to like the no bullshit you know alpha kind of attitude that you see in a lot of this stuff so like, I know what's right, and I'm not going to put up with anything that's wrong. Mm, nice, nice. Yeah, she's she's an amazing actress. I loved her in Sopranos as well. Another Sopranos yeah. connection. And then there's the maid. Again, just so funny when she's like, I found someone eating a sandwich, and she was on the floor. So good. <laughs> I just wanted to mention the maid, because it's an actress named um, Uta Hagen, who becomes, late in her career, one of the most renowned acting teachers of all time. Her students are people like Gene Wilder, Robert De Niro, Tony Goldwyn, Faye Dunaway, Hal Holbrook, Matthew Broderick, Whoopi Goldberg, Jack Lemmon, and like so many more people. So it's kind of interesting to see her in this movie. But it, it begs the question of like, so why is she playing a maid in like one scene if she's the greatest <laughs> acting teacher of all time? <laughs> you know, it it's hard being an older German woman. There's not a lot of roles guess, you can yeah, play. That's true. <laughs> 
That is true. She didn't get an awakenings? Come on. She probably could have been. Give her an awakening scene. What the fuck? She's like waking up. She's like, they didn't elect Hitler, did they? (laughs) Jesus Christ. Okay. This this movie has the Hitler joke. Does it have a... Oh, yeah, the Hitler joke. With Dershowitz and his son. Where he's like, would you defend Hitler? And he's like, I'd defend him. Then I'd kill him. Then I'd kill him. Some good jokes in this movie. Also, when um, Jeremy Irons shows up at the Chinese restaurant and is joking about killing his wife. What do you get the woman who has everything? A shot of morphine. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> insulin, yeah. A shot of insulin. Haha. <laughs> I liked him right in the very last scene, like still making jokes about it. Still cracking some wise ones. He's so weird. Yeah, man. So, yeah. And then they win. He gets off and... And the movie kind of really yada yadas its way around all of that. I, I, I kind of wish that it spent more time with the trial stuff so that we could see some of the work that they've been doing earlier come to fruition. Yeah, also, why did the movie choose to have that Rashomon thing at the very end? Wouldn't that be better suited in the beginning when they're talking about how he could have killed her? Yeah, and the various it's, it's, theories? It's because the movie like is trying to pretend that that's not the thing it's interested in, but it is. Right. What the movie really cares about is whether or not Klaus did it, and if he did it, why, or if he didn't, why not? Like, that's what the movie's actually about, but yeah. because it's from Dershowitz's perspective and based on a book that he wrote, like, it's pretending it's actually about the process of the trial. Yeah, it was just a weird thing for me that, like, he, they show that at the end just randomly. Just, like, I was trying to be like, oh, is it because they need to show something exciting happening yeah. in the climax of the movie that involves, like, murder? So it was and just weird. Audiences familiar with the case probably would have expected some kind of breakdown of the possible theories. Right. Yeah. But it does, it feels to me like one way this movie could have been significantly more interesting was to contrast the stories that Von Bülow tells the law team with Sonny's version of events mm. and then make no judgment as to which is the actual true one. Yeah. Like, that's sort of what this movie feels like it wants to be doing, but because it doesn't have the courage to mess too much with the facts, it it ultimately can only do it in, like, this supposition scene right at the very end. Man, weird movie. Glad I watched it. Total time capsule. Isn't it unbelievable that we've gone from guy maybe dragged his drugged wife into a cold bathroom to guy stabs his wife and her lover in a driveway to guy has a jet that takes people to a private island and has like i'm just talking about like the the escalation of celebrity trial that has happened in the last sure. like 40 sure. years it's unbelievable and i feel like this movie probably greased the wheels a little bit for oj uh which then greased the wheels for bill clinton and here we are with epstein and trump it's just what is what is going to be next i don't there's nowhere to go anymore I can't think of anything better. I can't either. I'm just really depressed now that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find something. We'll find something. Um, oh, no, that's we'll worse. Fig- we'll figure something out. Don't worry. Season we'll five is We'll come up with coming. a better crime, and we'll find an even bigger celebrity to commit it. Yeah, I can't, I can't really think of anyone bigger at this point, so they'll have to think of something good. Tom Cruise, when he goes to space for his movie, turns out it's actually to cover some horrific crime. That would be pretty good. I think really the only place we can go at this point is Obama. Like Obama's got to do something crazy and it'll be the trial of the millennium because we've had Trump and Epstein. Like I think Obama is the only person that trumps Trump at this point. 
right? I don't know what metrics you're judging this on, but I don't really want to participate in this conversation. <laughs> All right, we can cut this that out. This feels like a goddamn minefield that you're like, Ben, walk, walk ahead of you. It's I fine. Think it's, I think it's relevant, though, because I do think that we as a culture got really obsessed with these types of trials, especially in the uh, wake of OJ. We were always obsessed. Like, you can go back to, like, early days of newspapers and there's stories like this making headline news. Yeah, but it's it sensationalism never got, plain and simple. It never got to the 24-hour news cycle, the 24-hour well, right. news cycle and Twitter treatment that it does now. The, the ways in which that information is disseminated are much more powerful now. Yeah. But the, the, the underlying motivation, the underlying appeal hasn't changed. Yeah, for sure. But this movie is not the most nuanced portrayal of that either. No, not at all. I just think that it's sort of helped usher in a new era of this sensationalism of these like gigantic trials that became the biggest news story of the 90s. Certainly. Besides maybe the impeachment. Which the is idea that you one. could like have this horrific crime of the century that would turn into like the most talked about trial of its decade that would then be adapted into a best-selling memoir, which then would become a major feature film that would win awards. Yeah, exactly. But um, that said, this movie was not a hit. Oh, People really? did not care about this movie when it came out. That is so interesting. I would have thought it'd be a hit. You, I would have too, but maybe the Von Bulow case just wasn't that big a deal if people didn't really care seven years later. Okay, cool. Good to know. Uh, I don't. I couldn't find any info on the budget, but it opens on October nineteenth to one hundred seventy-seven thousand dollars. Goes on to gross fifteen point four million domestic. Wow. Okay. I always thought this movie was way bigger than that. I think it's simply because Irons wins Best Actor, and then the Klaus von Bülow character gains some notoriety in things like AFI's Hundred Greatest Villains or whatever. Okay. That the film continues to linger a little bit. I see. So this movie is really standing on Irons shoulders as well it should he's the best part of the film for sure and it won best actor and was nominated for best director, director and screenplay. screenplay yeah okay so yeah again another screener movie this is the darkest hour of its day it's like <laughs> oh my god look at what this actor is doing and then the rest of the movie's kind of like true what okay that's a good comparison that's a great comparison so what did we learn with these two kind of I mean, you liked Awakenings. I didn't and, really like it. And you I sort of liked Reversal of Fortune. enjoyed watching Reversal of Fortune for the historical ridiculousness of the whole affair. So what did we learn here with these two kind of duds? That uh, the Oscars tend not to be a great metric for the best films of the year. But that <laughs> no. one, We already knew that. And that the movies that get nominated but fail to win Oscars are generally probably not worth your time. <laughs> yeah. If you're still listening, God bless your soul. Well, okay, but let's talk about our 90s themes that we yeah. like to cover towards the end. So for me, we talked about uh, a lot of 1990 movies reflecting on the century prior. You can certainly read that into both of these films, um, Awakenings in particular, since you know it's, it's looking at a disease that was the consequence of an event that happened even earlier than that. You, you get these sort of different periods of history that it looks at and tries to yeah, reckon with. Yeah, that's true, with like the people kind of time traveling as well. Yeah. The 20s people being like, is it still illegal to drink? And this whole idea of like, you know, when Leonard is commenting on the state of life in 1969, it's really the filmmaker commenting on the state of life in 1990 and looking back in the past and saying like, here's what we got wrong. And that movie is very forward looking too. You know, it talks about the future of medicine 
And uh, it ends with this epilogue where it's sort of describing what's going to happen and what could happen going into the future. Yeah. Reversal has less of that. I mean, obviously, since it's covering a big event of the past, like it has some of that, but it doesn't have that much to say about that as a reflection of the American century or as no. a prediction of the future to come, even though it sort of inadvertently is. Yeah, that's true. We talked about new voices. Awakening certainly fits that mold with, you know, prominent female director. Um, and I guess you could make the same case for Reversal Fortune with a foreign born director, although that feels like a more tenuous interpretation of that theme. And I think it's worth noting Alan that both the memoirs is a new voice. <laughs> that both the memoirs are written by affluent white men, so like <laughs> that doesn't help. He is going to defend so many mur- wife murderers. <laughs> oh my god! See that part of it doesn't bother me. I do believe, as he puts it, that everyone is entitled to the best possible defense because it's the ultimate test of the legal system and of the laws themselves. The problem is when that defense comes at a high price such that it can only be afforded to those of means. Right. Which is what Alan Dershowitz seems to be all about. Um, But yeah, the constitutional element of it for sure. A couple more themes that came up. Lack of families. I wanted to revisit that one from last week because I thought that was an interesting theme. Awakenings is kind of a counter to this, right? There's several positive family units represented in that film. Yeah, there are. All the families come back to help out their lost relatives although those were families in 1969 19, 1990 so true maybe maybe i get off on a technicality but you're kind of you're kind of dipping your toes in two different pools there because you're also saying that the happiness thing is for 99 or for 90 <laughs> or whatever so sure that's that's not important you can it's have your important. cake and eat it too I, it's a w. at least it's reversal a w. of fortune is well within that camp where it's literally about someone trying to end a family and then like the other members of that family also trying to tear it apart. But of course, Mr. Perfection has a great son, father, son relationship. And yet no, clearly a broken family, no mention of the mother. We don't understand what happened there. True. But he's got a rock solid foundation with his kid. (laughs) Oh, they play basketball. Good stuff. They talk about killing Hitler. It's a really positive, healthy relationship. They seem to like each other's company, right? They're, they're doing okay. All right, I want to talk about passive protagonists again. This oh, is another yeah. one of my pet themes that's come up. I mean, Awakenings is literally about two characters who are, like, trapped in passivity. One right. is medically trapped, Leonard, and one is, like, emotionally trapped, Sayer. Yeah. I mean, he does... He does... At least the Doctor does something by it's true. arguing against the system. And then Leonard he does, does something. take action. By like but only to help also, others, not himself. True, but I'll 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 like the um I like that Leonard is literally just not doing anything. <laughs> That's great. He's the uh, ultimate passive protagonist. Ultimate passive protagonist. Yeah, it's sort of a great year for um people bound to wheelchairs, <laughs> I guess, with uh, misery and now this. And then Von Bulow in in Reversal Fortune, like even more so. His whole, like, first apparent crime is that he didn't do something he should have done, mm, where he doesn't call the doctor. And, like, time and again, we see he's like, you know, he just defers and acquiesces. Though right. Dershowitz doesn't fit the mold at all. He's super active. And, oh, he's very active. Yeah. And even Von Bulow is like, he, he at least, like, hires the best attorneys and is, like, trying to fight for his freedom. It's not like the world happens to him. Except we learned that he only did that because Christine Baranski told him to. Oh, that's true. I don't know. He's 
it's it's a weird line that we're drawing here. Like I always thought of it as more like the movie kind of happens to these characters. Yeah. Whereas like I don't know if I apply it to like someone like Von Bulow who like murdered someone and like hires a lawyer and like goes on trial and like defends himself. Like that's sort of where I personally draw the line just cuz like he's actually doing things. Cuz like I it's, suppose it's like in um in Ghost for example like he he's incapable of doing anything whereas like von bulow can hire this guy to defend him he can kill glenn close he can cheat on her like there, it's a weird Except, line we're drawing doesn't he feel like a passenger in this movie like he's not ever driving the he's, film yeah that's true he's never driving the movie dershowitz is definitely driving the movie i guess i'm thinking of it more in terms of like action reaction you know yeah um, I, I agree that these ones don't quite fit into the the yeah. mold. I think Awakenings does a fair amount, um, just because like the entire point of Sayer's emotional arc is that he is passive. Yeah, he's a, except for when he's fighting against the job that he begged for for some crazy reason. Um, but yeah, sure. Violence against women on here, I see. Yeah, that pops up that. again in Reversal of Fortune. Yeah, um, that's shown up a, a few times. Here. That ha- I think that's one of the strongest ones that we've got, to be honest, because that. Yeah has been in a lot of these movies. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, but not in Awakenings. So, I don't know. Penny Marshall, maybe? She's, like, not trying to show violence against women? I don't know. I mean, he does throw a ball at Lucy. I don't oh, know. that's true. That is true. But she catches it. He does safely. drop her glasses. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. I'm, I'm glad I've seen these movies now. I... Don't know if I'll ever revisit them. I'm really excited for what we've got coming up because I've personally been a little bored with these last few movies that we've done. So we got to get back to some action. We've got to get back to some craziness. We're going Jacob's Ladder next, I believe. Oh, boy. Yeah. So some psychological thrilling. I'm pretty excited for that. It's the first day of fall. October's just around the corner. We can get a little horror in there for you. Yeah. And then the week after that, we're doing Dances with Wolves. So I think it's going to be a little more exciting around here at back to the movies in the next few weeks so we just wanted to ask our listeners to please follow us on instagram and twitter at bttm pod and you can also follow us on letterboxd we have hayne 101 and i think if you just search me and nat mcgee we're both on there we're writing reviews and stuff it's a great social networking tool that is based around movie reviews which is amazing i'm considering deleting all my other social media and just using letterboxes it's the only one that i have it's wonderful yeah it's a cool website so definitely check it out don't forget to rate review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to it that can be a really big help right yes we're trying to continue to grow our audience get blown up in the algorithms so please do that and we'd like to thank Andy Gagnon for our amazing theme song and Jackie Saltzman for our beautiful logo. Both amazing pieces of art that we love <laughs> so very much. So yeah, that was the Oscars the time forgot. For Back to the Movies, this has been Nat. And this is Ben. And we'll see you next week when we go Back to the Movies. It is a very fabulous podcast. I listen to it every night as Sunny takes her three-hour bath. I particularly enjoy it. House Party, one of the great films. I saw it nine times in the theaters. It's a solid Irons. I gotta say, Irons is a good one to have. Can you say uh, um, 
Simon says. Simon says.